The following is a message by Dr. David Van Drunen of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. First Kings 10 verses 1 through 13. 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13. Let me read these verses, and then we'll reflect upon them together. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones, Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of almug wood and precious stones. The king used the almug wood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almug wood has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. Well, we have before us, as uh, we, uh, on this Thursday uh, faculty uh, rotation, as we consider First and Second Kings, we have before us a very marvelous and enchanting story about the Queen of Sheba coming from a distant land, perhaps from Arabia, to visit Solomon and to see his wisdom and the splendor of his kingdom. Now, I want to reflect with you for a few moments about the larger context in which this marvelous story uh, occurs. Uh, in the beginning of First Kings, in these immediately preceding chapters... Uh, we see the fulfillment of so many promises of God, at least the initial fulfillments of many promises of God, as uh, long before he had 
prophesied that he would bring his people into this land and that their boundaries would extend and they would enjoy prosperity in this place. Well, in these, uh, these chapters in 1 Kings, we in fact see so many of these things coming to bear. We see the boundaries of Israel extending. Uh, we see marvelous prosperity and wealth. Uh, there is peace uh, with the uh, enemy nations around. So many things are going right, are good for Israel. And as we so often think about, uh, when we look at Old Testament Israel, as we look at uh, the experience of God's Old Testament people, we see in it a foreshadowing, a type of that heavenly, eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, through much of the Old Testament, it doesn't look like much of a type of heaven because things go so wrong and there's so much lack of prosperity and lack of flourishing. But here in these chapters of First Kings, it really never gets any better than this. And we see this anticipation of our Lord's everlasting kingdom. So this is what's going on inside of this promised land that the Lord has given to his people. And outside of the land we get some indications of life uh, going on there. We know that when the people of Israel came into the land of Palestine, they were to destroy, completely destroy, all of the foreign peoples, these nations that were living there. And they were to dwell there as a pure and separate people. But we also know, even from the Mosaic Law itself, that things were to be different outside of the land, They weren't to annihilate all the nations of the earth. They could have certain sorts of relationships with nations outside of the land. In a sense, we see the life of the Noahic covenant of Genesis 9, the life of common grace going on in some ordinary ways outside of the land. And we see Solomon in these preceding chapters having some relationships with these other nations all around. One of his main trading partners is Hiram, the king of Tyre, who is mentioned parenthetically in verses 11 and 12 of our chapter, but we've met him before in 1 Kings. It is permissible for Solomon and the covenant people to engage in these sorts of commercial transactions with the nations all around, even though someone like Hiram, the king of Tyre, shows no apparent interest in the Lord or in things of the true religion. Now, I mention those things because they seem to bear upon our story in 1 Kings chapter 10. And so as we come to 1 Kings chapter 10, we meet immediately this new character, the Queen of Sheba. We're not even told what her name is, but some obviously very wealthy royal figure, uh, referred to as the the Queen of the South uh, in uh, the Gospels. So this queen of Sheba comes, and I'd suggest to you that the queen of Sheba is not like Hiram, the king of Tyre. There's something different about the way the queen of Sheba is presented to us. For while Hiram, the king of Tyre, and others seem to be nothing much more than commercial partners to Solomon, the queen of Sheba, the first thing that we Learn about her in verse 1. 
is that she hears about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord. That's how the NIV puts it, which I'm reading from. It's not immediately clear to me. Maybe it's clear to a few Hebrew scholars in this room how exactly that should be best rendered. But it seems to be communicated to us here that at least one of the primary things that has attracted the Queen of Sheba to Solomon is his connection to Yahweh, to Jehovah. It seems that she has, for some reason we don't know, has some interest in the Lord and in Solomon's connection to him and the wisdom which he displays that somehow derives from his relationship to the Lord. And we'll notice, you will notice later in this passage in verse 9 that she offers praise to the Lord, some, an expression of worship to him for the Lord's uh, uh, his eternal love for Israel in placing Solomon on his throne. This is something we don't find of the foreign monarchs mentioned elsewhere in 1 Kings. So immediately we are struck by the fact that the Queen of Sheba doesn't really come to trade. She's going to bring gifts and receive gifts, but she's more than a commercial partner, maybe not really a commercial partner at all. She is one who is fascinated by Solomon's relation to the name of the Lord. And she comes to ask him questions. Perhaps there's an element of testing here. She's heard about his wisdom, and now she wants to come to see if it's true, to see if he can answer these puzzles, these riddles that she has on her mind. Now she comes, and we find that she arrives with these, this great caravan of servants and precious goods. And in verse 3, we are told that Solomon answers all of her questions. Whatever difficulty she places before him, whatever riddles she asks him, Solomon knows the answers. He is able to give her wise responses to these things. And we read in verse 4 that when this wisdom is made manifest to her, and besides that, when she sees all of his wealth, all of the grandeur of his kingdom, we read that she was overwhelmed. Seems to say almost quite literally in Hebrew, it took her breath away. She couldn't believe what she had seen and heard from Solomon and his kingdom. What is going on as we see the Queen of Sheba come, intrigued by his connection to the name of the Lord, overwhelmed by his wisdom, and as she offers an expression of praise and worship to the Lord after she beholds these things? Well, as we think about the picture that is being portrayed for us here in 1 Kings, we are being shown the fulfillment of God's promises to bring a people into the land and to prosper them in this land and to extend these boundaries. But if we think about the giving of these promises, back to Abraham, one of the promises that was given to Abraham in this connection was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Not simply that all the nations of the earth would find some economic benefit by trading with this wealthy nation but they would be spiritually blessed because of what God was to do through Abraham's seed who was to come and take possession 
of this land. And indeed, if we would look later in Scripture, we would find this theme being developed in ways that seem to hearken back to exactly what we're seeing here in 1 Kings 10. It's difficult not to think about Isaiah 60, verse 5. When the future glory of Zion is being portrayed for us, we read, Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Is this not what we have seen in just with a small glimpse of the Queen of Sheba coming, bringing the wealth of nations into Israel to add in some way to the glory of the kingdom of Solomon? Now, it's very interesting that the very next verse in Isaiah 60 says this, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord, which is exactly what the queen of Sheba many years before had done. And this theme does not cease to be put before us until the penultimate chapter of the Holy Scriptures. In Revelation 21, Verse 24, we read, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. That is, into the splendor of the heavenly Jerusalem, of which Solomon's earthly Jerusalem was a type and a shadow, manifesting much greater, glorious, marvelous things that were to come. And so we might ask ourselves, what what exactly is this wealth of the nations, the glory of the kings that is to come to Zion in these last days and on that final great last day. There are some who have tried to interpret these passages as if it is referring to the cultural accomplishments of the nations which will somehow be carried over through the fiery judgment on the last day into the new Jerusalem. But we might ask whether that sort of literalistic reading of some of these passages is really accurate. What is the wealth of the nations? Well, since probably the most famous economics book ever written seems to have derived its title from Isaiah 60, verse 5, perhaps we can think in mundane economic terms for a moment. What is the wealth of nations in economic terms? Is it the amount of gold that is in the national treasury? Is it the oil reserves that a country has? Is it the number of tall buildings that grace the city landscapes? That really isn't the wealth of nations, even in mundane economic terms, is it? It's the people who are the wealth of nations. You can put creative, hard-working, productive, law-abiding citizens. You can take away everything they have, put them in a land barren of natural resources, and in a short period of time, they will be wealthy. You can put lazy, unlaw-abiding, uncreative people in a land full of diamond mines and tall buildings, 
and glorious palaces, and in a very short period of time, they will be poor. The wealth of nations is in the people. And is that really any different in what Scripture is talking about? The wealth of the nations in terms of that eschatological Jerusalem that our Lord is building even now and will firmly and finally establish on the last day. The promise given to Abraham was first and foremost about the peoples of all the nations being brought in and being blessed through God's work to Abraham. In Zechariah 2, it is prophesied that the nations will be plundered by the Lord. And what does it mean? Is plundered because many nations are going to be gathered to the Lord on that day. The Lord, even now, is plundering the nations through the preaching of the Gospels. And every time a person turns from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ, the nations are plundered. The wealth of the nations is taken out from under Satan and brought into, under the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, in Galatians 3, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled as all peoples, slave and free, male and female, barbarians, Gentiles, Jews, are brought into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled. That will be the wealth of the new Jerusalem, the wealth of the nations, the glory of the kings. It's not that there's going to be splendid palaces as we know them now, plenty of beautiful diamond rings that we will all be wearing. That is not the wealth of the nations brought into the new Jerusalem. Of course, we might also note that as many as the gifts that the Queen of Sheba brings, they are far surpassed by the things that are already there in Jerusalem. And so it will be on that last day when the Lord brings the new Jerusalem down from heaven. Its glory and its splendor will make the palaces of this age look like nothing. But the Lord will bring in a people from every tribe, people, and nation to grace his everlasting kingdom. Well, we're running out of time, but let me just very briefly mention one other thing that uh, is certainly relevant as we consider this passage uh, this morning. The Queen of Sheba is mentioned in the New Testament. In both Luke and Matthew, we find brief references to her. Let me read uh, the reference in Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Before I read that, let me just say this. If we are thinking again about the early chapters of 1 Kings and the splendor of that kingdom and its anticipation of that much greater splendor of that heavenly Jerusalem, surely we understand that part of the splendor of that kingdom long ago was Solomon, the king himself. His wisdom, his greatness was crucial for the glory of that kingdom as a whole. King Solomon is a marvelous type of that greater king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament brings that out. Here in Matthew chapter 12, the people rebelliously ask for a sign from Jesus in their unbelief. 
he first gives them the sign of Jonah. The men of Nineveh are going to rise up on the last day and testify against you because they listen to Jonah and one greater than Jonah is here. Then Jesus says this, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. And at first reading, that makes perfect sense. If the queen of Sheba traveled miles and miles to hear Solomon, how pitiful it is that when Jesus of so much greater worth and wisdom than Solomon was standing before their eyes that they would not listen to him. But before before we become too quick to judge these people who were slow to listen to Jesus, we might consider a few things. Did Jesus really look a lot like Solomon when he came? At first blush, Would you mistake Jesus for King Solomon in his splendor? Now, if Jesus had come in his eschatological glory, it would have been easy to recognize him as one greater than Solomon. And in fact, on the last day, Philippians 2, 9-11 tells us this, even those who don't acknowledge him, those without faith, will be forced to fall upon their knees and acknowledge him as Lord of all because of the glory of his exaltation. But what about here? What about during his earthly ministry? He didn't live in a palace. In fact, he doesn't seem to have had a home at all. He didn't have outward wealth. Instead of servants, he had a ragtag bunch of disciples who didn't listen to him very well as it was. Isaiah tells us that he had no beauty, that we would be attracted to him. He apparently wasn't even all that handsome a man. Jesus would not have been readily mistaken for King Solomon in his glory. But you see, the people were called to walk there, not by sight, but by faith. And to see and hear in the words that Jesus spoke to them, a wisdom that far surpassed the wisdom of Solomon Not just one endowed with wisdom as a gift from God, but the one who in his very self was the wisdom of God, whose words brought everlasting life. They could not see it with their eyes, but as they heard his word by faith, they were to see this one who was greater than Solomon, and so few had that faith. But you see how relevant this is for us, for our own lives, and for the way that we teach or preach and present our Lord Jesus to those who hear us. For, of course, when we preach Christ, we preach his resurrection, we preach his ascension, we preach his coming in glory. But we can't preach that except by preaching it through the cross. We preach his exaltation but only through his humiliation. Without that, we can't understand his exaltation. And yes, when we present the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hold out the hope of people enjoying that eschatological glory, 
of people being blessed as Solomon's officials were blessed to see him and to listen to him day after day. That is our everlasting hope. But we only get there through a time of pilgrimage, a time of weakness, a time in which the church dwells without outward splendor, without conducting its worship services in temples of glory. See, we must preach Christ crucified. And we must preach that the people of God must go through many hardships before they reach that everlasting kingdom. In other words, we must preach that people believe in Christ and have a hope in him that sees beyond the present veil of humiliation and suffering. And so let us pray that we might have faith, that we would not be rebellious like those of Jesus' own day, but that we would grasp Jesus and see the wisdom of the cross. For if we walk by faith now, one day we indeed will also walk by sight, and we will enjoy the presence of our Lord, the majesty of his wisdom, as we live with him day by day and enjoy him forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you for this charming story of a royal figure from the ends of the earth coming, paying her tribute, not just to Solomon, but to you, and raising up such a king and blessing your people so abundantly. And we thank you for the hope that we have that one day we will see a king greater than Solomon, that we will enjoy the bounty of a kingdom greater than that of Old Testament Israel. Father, may we long for that day and be sustained by that hope. And until then, we pray that you would give us faith. Faith to see him who is portrayed for us, not first of all as glorified, but first of all, as crucified. And we pray that you would give us patience during a time in which we forsake the splendor of this world, that we might have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings, even as we await that day when our faith will be turned to sight. Please grant this faith to us, to all of your people. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.